If the U.S. government, the media, the legal system, and the church can't keep democracy alive, it's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us on a state sale. I am Lori Lattimore Volkman. I'm Brad Rayleigh. And today we are going to get into the second part of our talk on the news media versus Trump. In our first part, Brad and I talked at length at how Trump always mesmerizes the news media with a, quote, new tone, and sadly keeps the focus on that rather than on the lies he still puts forth at an alarming rate. So of course, since we recorded this pod, Donald Trump has had another press conference, and surprise, surprise, there was no more new tone. In fact, it was the Donald Trump we know and hate. He was lying, he was narcissistic, he couldn't show any empathy, he was racist. He once again touted hydroxychloroquine, something that has not been proved to be effective in coronavirus treatment. Just all the things we know and hate about this man in the press briefing. So we thought it'd be kind of fun to play a couple of these clips and fact check him and there was actually an instance where a CNN reporter did a great job trying to hound him, and he couldn't take it. Retail, retail sales came in two weeks ago at the highest number in the history of our country. So we look like we're heading to some very, very good economic times. That means jobs. That means stock market. Stock market is already doing very well. It's getting to a point very close to where it was when we had this, uh, when we were hit with the, the plague. Actually. The U.S. economy's contraction in the second quarter was the worst on record, as the GDP dropped 9.5%. Nearly 1.5 million people filed state unemployment claims last week, and stocks have dropped because the economic numbers have been so bleak. You can look at large portions of our country. It's, uh, it's corona-free, but we are watching very carefully California, Arizona, Texas, and most of Florida that's uh, starting to head down in the right direction. Um, not true. America has four and a half million cases and hit the 150,000 deaths this week. There were 1,400 deaths reported on Wednesday, which equals about one per minute. Notably, former GOP presidential candidate Herman Cain died from COVID-19 after contracting it at Trump's Tulsa rally. And despite a few dips in number of cases in California, Texas, and Florida, both cases and deaths are actually still at record levels in all three states. So, not really better. We, as you know, have done an excellent job of watching over Portland and watching our courthouse where they wanted to burn it down. They're anarchists, nothing short of anarchists, agitators. And uh, we have protected it very powerfully. Trump's excellent job has involved deploying unwanted federal agents to what was a peaceful protest area before unidentified agents showed up and began attacking and essentially kidnapping largely peaceful protesters that included high school students, military veterans, off-duty lawyers, and a line of mothers who call themselves the greatest name ever, wall of moms. 
It's recommendations of many other peoples and people, including doctors. Uh, many doctors think it is extremely successful, the hydroxychloroquine. So, no, they don't. In fact, the FDA revoked emergency authorization for the use of hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19 because while a few studies found it could help alleviate symptoms, the research was very inconclusive and had not been peer-reviewed, and they didn't find that it made that much difference. So he's lying. I happen to think, based on what I've read, I've read a lot about hydroxy. Uh, I happen to think that it has an impact. A group of doctors yesterday, a large group that were put on the internet, and for some reason the internet wanted to take them down and uh, took them off. I guess Twitter took them off, and I think Facebook took them off. I don't know why. I think they're very respected doctors. As far as this group of doctors, it was assembled by Tea Party, and many of their claims contradict recommendations from public health organizations and experts like Dr. Anthony Fauci. The video that Trump tweeted, as well as his son, as well as Breitbart News, was taken down by YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter for being coronavirus disinformation. And it's the latest example of this kind of thing being packaged as if they are facts in order to counter the actual official narrative by the administration and health officials all over the country. Responded. The woman that you said was a great doctor in that video that you retweeted last night said that masks don't work and there is a cure for COVID-19, both of which health experts say is not true. She's also made videos saying that doctors make medicine using DNA from aliens and that they're trying to create a vaccine to make you immune from becoming religious. Well, maybe it's the same, so, maybe it's not, but I, I, can't, I can tell you this. That. She was on air along with many other doctors. They were big fans of hydroxychloroquine, and I thought she was very impressive in the sense that from where she came, I don't know which country she comes from, but she said that she's had tremendous success with hundreds of different patients, and I thought her voice was an important voice, but I know nothing about her. Yeah, go ahead, Paul. Last week, you said mass. Last week, well, real quick. Last okay. week, you said Okay, thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. So there are several funny parts about this. One of the things you can't see is that Trump walks away and ends his press conference abruptly because he realized he can't actually justify his position here. And let's just remind you, if you didn't read the story on this, the main doctor who was featured on the video that he retweeted and put on Facebook, a Houston pediatrician who, among other things, claims that a lot of gynecological problems in females, they all stem from having sex with demons in your dreams. This is the doctor he just said was a very good doctor, but then kind of tried to deny it as he realized he was going to get pressed on something that he really knows nothing about. Last night in tweets that were deleted by Twitter, uh, you said that Dr. Fauci misled the country about hydroxychloroquine. How so? No, not at all. I think I don't even know what his stance is on it. I and I agree with a lot of what he said. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting. Uh, he's got a very good approval rating, and I like that. I, it's good. And he's got this high approval rating. So why don't I have a high approval rating with respect, and the administration, with respect to the virus? Ugh, I have no words for this one. As Fauci would say, it's nonsense. President 
as a president more power than many people thought the president had. So the president is now, which happens to be me, in a position where I can do an immigration bill and a health care bill and some other bills. And you've seen some of them come along. This one is actually very scary because as of this week, Trump has openly defied the Supreme Court ruling that said he could not just end DACA, the program to help dreamers stay in the country, and instead had to fully restore it, something he's just decided not to do. So yeah, that's disturbing. The good news is there's a lot of good journalism happening and there are things we can do to make that more prominent. Before we get into that though, let me walk you through a really fast history of the press. Really fast. So the current news media landscape has some context. So the First Amendment was passed with the Bill of Rights in 1791. You all knew that. And this gave us freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom to protest, all those things. It's an amendment that is highly misunderstood by many Americans who think it means they can say whatever they feel like saying, which is a discussion for another podcast. But the main tenet for the free press is that the government cannot establish a state media and it cannot stop the independent media from printing information, truthful, accurate information. But it's really in the early mid 1830s that newspapers began developing into publications based on reporting and news gathering, aided in part by advancements in printing. And that brought us what we often refer to as the penny press. Mass production, sell it for a penny. Lots of people were starting to get a newspaper. A lot of these were not the kind of newspapers we think of today. They definitely had um, a political or social bent, and it wasn't really until after the Civil War that the press took on a more neutral role in providing information rather than, than viewpoint. As America moved past the Civil War and past Reconstruction and changed from a more agrarian society to an industrialized society, the newspaper industry changed as well. And the business of running a newspaper focused a lot more on selling newspapers, and they did this a lot through sensationalism, an era known as yellow journalism, which I'm sure you heard about in some history class. You may have even heard that the newspapers caused the Spanish-American War, which is not true. But it is true that the newspapers used the drama between the countries to help sell their papers, and they hyped it up as much as possible. Something that probably looks a little familiar in today's media. Journalism began taking on more of an investigative role. This we know often as the muckraking era. Ironically, before and after World War I, the government and the courts were not very tolerant of a lot of voices in the press, and a lot was suppressed if they were not pro-America, pro-government. So there were a few landmark Supreme Court cases in the 1930s that gave more power to the press and really helped it develop that true role as the watchdog of the government that we, that we now kind of expect, at least at, at some level. And during this time, the development of radio and then eventually TV joined to be part of what we know as the press, as journalism. And print and broadcast media became trusted sources of information about what was happening in America and also around the world, particularly during World War II and then the, the Korean and Vietnam Wars that followed, certainly during the Civil Rights Movement in the 60s, and obviously culminating 
with the Watergate scandal of President Nixon in the early 70s. And so when journalists or journalism professors like me refer to the heyday of journalism, it most likely is a reference to this time, the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, when radio, TV, newspaper are all working with the same goal of informing about events going on locally, nationally, and internationally. And you can probably see where this is now going to break down. The first crack in what I would call this golden age was competition within the local news markets as radio and TV began to expand in cities and states. And, and so with only so much advertising money to go around in a TV market, the competition was fierce. Local TV news naturally gravitated toward the if it bleeds, it leads kind of story to attract viewers. News sort of gravitated to a more sensationalist kind of story rather than just in coverage. Another crack in this came in the late 80s, early 90s when cable TV came along and the whole idea of 24-7 news was an option. So CNN began covering news around the clock. National Network News took on a more sensational and graphics-oriented presentation so that they could compete. And then more and more cable news channels popped up offering a blend of what we would consider daily news reports and now the very common, too common, news talk shows that represent various political or social perspectives and tend to only attract a certain corner of the market when it comes to the audience. This chaotic landscape was further muddied when the internet came along and allowed print publications a forum for 24-7 news, but it totally imploded, in my opinion, with social media, where literally anyone can distribute quote-unquote news. As with all new technology, much of the added capabilities with radio and then TV and then cable and then internet and now social media, many of those things have been really beneficial, both for news distribution and information sharing. Now we have a landscape with so many voices that it becomes really difficult for people to distinguish what is actually traditional media with trained journalists versus just hacks. And also, even within traditional media, understanding which sources are opinion articles and which ones are news articles and being able to distinguish fact from opinion. Right. It has also been in this landscape that the concept of both sides journalism has come into our purview and it is to our detriment. Both sides-ism has been perfected during the Trump era as journalists are so often intimidated by his incessant berating that I think they don't want to be accused of bias or of being fake news or of failing. And so therefore they feel compelled to include both sides of an argument. But this creates a completely false paradigm because both sides are not operating within the truth. One side is dealing with facts and reality, while one side is operating in conspiracy theory and propaganda. And to cover both of those is demonstrably disingenuous to the truth. And it is not actual journalism. The best description of the danger with this comes from one of my favorite journalists and media critics, Mehdi Hassan of The Intercept. We have not learned the lessons of 2016, and therefore you still see the both sides coverage, you still see the resistance to calling a lie a lie, you still see the, the, the euphemisms for racism in the New York Times and the Washington Post. 
Say freaking racist, right? So I think those are the huge problems. We know today that free, free speech is under assault. Democracy is under assault. Civil liberties are under assault. Uh, all of the progress that the US has made on racism is under assault. And the only way you can cover that fairly is to point out that it's the Republican Party and Trump that is leading that assault. And neutral journalists can't do that. They can't call, they can't call it out. Because that would be one yeah. side. Well, hold on. What's the Democrats? Where's their role in this? They have to be blamed too. And of course, the Democrats have problems. But right now, the white nationalist is the guy in the Oval Office. And I think they just, and then they say, oh, we can't be biased. We can't take a side. Yes, you can. Sorry, you can be pro-fact. You can be pro-truth. You can be pro-civil liberties. And you can be anti-racism and anti-authoritarianism. There's nothing stopping journalists from doing that. I think when people say bias, or it, they feel like it's a partisan thing. And, and what, what the conservatives have done very effectively then is to simply categorize certain topics as, as political and partisan. So if you do a story on climate change, you're seen as being attacking the conservative side yeah, of the world, even just having a story on it. I totally agree with you. It should not be biased to tell the truth. It should not be biased to point out racism. It should not be biased to point out that our earth is slowly deteriorating, not even that slowly, because of pollution and our use of fossil fuels and our apparent um, unwillingness to do things to keep protecting our clean air and our clean water. It's absurd, absolutely absurd. The more often the media points out, your leaders are lying to you. At some point, people have to reconcile that that proves to be true. They can't say that didn't happen or you made that up. Like there's so much evidence. Right. Right. On the good side, a trend toward explanatory journalism is taking hold. And especially in this kind of chaotic environment, that kind of journalism can really help not just news and not just journalism as a profession, but it can help the American electorate immensely because we can actually become educated and informed in a way that we know what to do with this information. I was thinking, by the way, uh, there was a great piece, and it's probably 10 years old now, how hospitals decide prices. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was an amazing piece. I don't even know if it's still available online, but, but it was that exact kind of explainer. Something that Vox would do is they would they would do a little bit of a history, you know, background. How did we get to such a complicated health insurance scenario in the United States? How did we grow from whatever medical coverage to this, where the pharmaceutical company and the health insurance industry are constantly dictating our health coverage, you know, from in the United right. States? Like that's that's journalism that is explaining to us really how complicated things in our society are working and how they affect us. And it's not a bias. It's somebody who knows how to get the information. They know how to go to the public sources. They know how to go to the public records. They know how to get these things. They know how to read them. They know what kind of people to interview. And then they put together a full report that explains this and analyzes it from different angles and says, here's your news. So here's the here's the problem. So like uh, David Fahrenthold, I love yeah. that guy from the Washington Post that did all that great stuff on the Trump Foundation. I mean, I, I've read I don't know how many pieces he's done. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is the kind of, you know, digging in and, and putting pieces together. And I'm like, I really yeah. like him. there are people out there. There are people on NPR doing some really good in-depth pieces. 
this may be a little bit of the chicken and egg kind of question in terms of finding where the where the solution lies, because I'm going to suggest, even based on what you just said, that David Fahrenholt does a, you know, a fantastic piece on on the corruption of the foundation and uh, the people we're talking about, the people who are more interested in um, a sex scandal or, uh, you know, something like that or a traffic accident or whatever are, right. are simply going to be bored by that article that, that Baron Holt did on the foundation. They're, they're not going to read it. Right. So, I mean, you said it yourself, the fact that there are so many sources out there. Um, it, it, I think one can argue there are good journalists who are in fact doing this. The question is how do you do it in this age um, where it actually garners attention outside of people who are already interested, interested like us. It, that we can have journalists doing their job, but if no, it's sort of like a tree falling in the woods kind of thing. You know, yeah. if, if no one's actually reading what they're, except for you and I, and we're already convinced, then <laughs> then how, how do those people continue to do what they're doing? I guess that's that's my question. Okay, so there's a lot in there, but let me break it down on a couple levels. So first, with Trump's base, they're basically a lost cause. We know they're watching Fox News and paying attention to Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and reading Breitbart and possibly the Daily Caller or whatever crap comes across Facebook and they're buying the lies. So that group is not going to start reading David Fahrenheit, right? Right. <laughs> on the macro level, that's a different animal and the onus is really going to be on journalists and media critics and politicians and attorneys and thought influencers to point out the hypocrisy and disinformation that is happening there. But on the micro level, what we can do is a few things. First and foremost, those of us who are paying attention to it need to keep supporting it. We can't just be okay with 10 free articles a month and think that this kind of journalism happens for free. It costs tons of money to support good investigative journalists. And while newspapers saw some resurgence in readership since 2016, the pandemic has really hurt them a lot. So we have to buy subscriptions. You don't have to buy one for everything. I mean, I do, but I, you know, journalism professors out there, you should be. <laughs> you of all people, do it. But most of us, you know, support your local paper. Then support either or both, you know, the Post or the Times, because they're really supplying that investigative journalism. And then buy a subscription to a, a real thought-provoking magazine like The New Yorker or The Atlantic. Right. So supporting those, that kind of journalism will go a long way in keeping it alive and making sure we get the truth out there. To go along with that, we have to read the news. Quit paying attention only to TV news and whatever runs across Facebook and Twitter. I mean, seriously. CNN is not a bunch of conspiracy theory racists like Fox, but it still trots out extremists and give the, gives them airtime just for ratings. So if that's your main news source, if that's your only news source, you're going to miss the big picture of all the corruption and all the wrongdoing and all the context of what it means for our democracy, because you'll just get caught up in the latest fight today. The insanity from Trump's press briefings. As much as Trump likes to bash CNN as fake news, he also loves it, partly because they give him a punching bag that you know, he loves to take advantage of, and mainly because they give him a platform. So I wouldn't say don't tune in to CNN, because honestly, 
you know, support them so they can compete for the ad dollars with Fox, right? But I would absolutely be reading the Post and the New York Times for investigative news, like I said. I'd read The Atlantic and Rolling Stone and The New Yorker for depth pieces on bigger issues in our society and our government. And I would always look at Vox.com, Vox with a V for victory over Trump, <laughs> for the explanatory stories on a range of topics, because they talk about big picture political and cultural ideas and, and science and health and just all kinds of great information. I would listen to NPR and PBS. They have great debates and great feature stories, and they really try to explore the, the depths of stories and not just give the headlines. So supporting that journalism is what we really have to do so that we're really making sure that those journalists can do their jobs and give us the information that we're going to, that we have to have. I mean, if we really want a democracy, we need that kind of fourth estate. Here's the question of, in terms of where the, the media failure and the kind of the background of this is, is it in fact that even though the, the white house press corps, uh, Chris Hayes and other people have been saying for a while that it probably is not necessary. We, we may not need <laughs> this kind of, but that the reason that they, this is, asking for a culture change among media people is that historically this was a, a competitive environment in there that they're trying to get their question asked and answered because that's how they, then they get their byline in their newspaper or that's what leads on their network. First, they have got to give up this fallacy of reporting both sides. There's a great journalism adage that gets tossed around every now and then. If one source says it's raining and another source says it isn't, your job as a journalist is not to report both sides. Your job is to freaking go outside and see if it's raining and report that. Midi Hassan of The Intercept has a great rant on this where he says journalists have to stop thinking it's wrong to be one-sided because it's not wrong to be pro-fact or to be pro-truth or anti-racist or any of those good, noble, concepts that the free press should be supporting. The second thing journalists have to do is they have got to be aggressive and push back at these press briefings. You know, number one, do not broadcast live. They would do viewers a much bigger service and journalism and the electorate and everything a bigger favor. And I think advertisers would go along with this if they tape it spend three minutes Googling his wrong facts, just like you and I do before we put something on Facebook, and correct him in the story. I mean, this, it's not rocket science. It's just good, solid journalism. Quit letting him dictate the narrative. Don't let him intimidate the reporters. You know, work together as a press corps and form an agenda before going in. And don't let Trump, as Margaret Sullivan of the Washington Post always says, be the assignment editor. He should not be telling us what the story of the day is. Reporters should know what they want to ask. Ask about the Russia bounty scandal. It's a crime that this has not been a story that's out there more often. Ask him about the coronavirus response and, and the death toll. And when he says it's, you know, looking great in all these states, remind him that 28 states actually have numbers going up. So it's not looking better. You know, like they, they should be doing homework before they go in 
and they should have a plan, they should have an agenda, they need to be dictating this rather than going in there and just letting him say what he wants and then trying to react to that because you cannot react to him. Have a plan <laughs> and coordinate it. Absolutely coordinate it. If we all plan to ask about the Russia bounty scandal and then we all plan to ask about the coronavirus and we have this list of questions and we all have this list. And so no matter who he calls on, the first person who's called on asks the first question. And if he doesn't want to answer it, the second person tries to ask that question again. And if he doesn't want to answer it again, and he goes to the third person, they ask it. And, you know, he'll get to his cronies at OANN or Fox News who will ask a softball question. But when they come back to the New York Times or CNN or NBC News, ask the question that he refuses to answer. About that last part, because I love that idea, and I've seen that before, too, that I would I would like to see that, too, where, uh, you know, he ignores a question, doesn't answer it, and the person tries to do a follow-up and get him depressed, and he, you know, belittles him and moves on to the new person. The new person should say, yeah, why don't you answer that question? What That's a good question. Why aren't you answering that question? And Because we know what would happen is he would get mad and leave. So what if he walks out? Fine. <laughs> then you have a story of him refusing to answer the question. And that is far more important to see this is how the president can't answer our questions. This is how the president doesn't know. This is how the president wants to lie but got caught in his lie. They have a responsibility. They have to recognize that. I mean, and as media consumers, we just have to push back on them as much as possible. It's our job to put pressure on them. It's their job to be a responsible press. And if he walks out, I would take that all day, every day, twice on Sundays to be, to have that visual of him being yeah. so flustered and having to ask a yeah. question that he walks out. I'd rather have that. I, I, I guess the, the question I have for that, cause I agree with that completely is I'm still thinking there that, that the part of the problem is the corporate leadership, a lot of this media, instead of having their reporters going in and trying to cover what their priorities are, the questions they want to have covered, the idea that they would be coordinating with their essentially the people they're competing with for clicks and views and and ad revenue and everything else and that seems to be part of the problem correct very likely but, but if i'm a reporter if i'm the white house reporter for whichever network and i'm having to argue this with my assignment editor i'm going to argue this is still a great story i'm going to show you video of the president going around the room and not being able to answer a question from anybody, yeah. I might be one of them asking, it doesn't matter, I'm gonna be in there someday. And then he's gonna walk out and then I'm gonna come on camera live and I'm gonna talk about how the yeah. president didn't yeah. answer anything. And so then I have a great story for you. Honestly, most of those reporters, the story they do for their network doesn't show them, they're not missing out on a story is what I'm getting okay. at. In fact, what they should recognize is that they're actually going to be doing journalism as a whole and themselves down the road a service by showing that they understand how to be the watchdog of the government. They recognize their role as the fourth estate. TV doesn't get that as much, I think, because they've always been about the, the show, you know. And so video does matter to them. But I think it's great video <laughs> if, yeah. if, if you see this thing taking place because that's, in fact, that's unusual and the news loves unusual. So it would be, yeah. it'd be a bigger story. That's right. Well, I, I like, by the way, I even took notes. You'll know, I wrote down, I love you. Your first, your first point was that we need to support good media. 
by subscribing to newspapers that actually do good work. And um, I, I, all right, I'm going to subscribe to the New York Times. Um, <laughs> have to support local journalism and national journalism. And okay. so I would, I tell people, subscribe to two papers, pick a really good one that you like to read nationally and pick a good one locally. And that cost, what, it's maybe $120 total a year, maybe it's 150 a year per month. I mean, that's it's beer money. It's nothing. Yeah, no, no, I agree. Okay, so support, uh, financial support, and then really pressing the press corps uh, to have a plan in terms of how they do this, whether it's uh, delaying these press conferences so they can be uh, vetted for fact-checking or and probably and, not or, uh, support each other in terms of making sure that he can't get away with just simply gliding past. One of the things I was thinking about when you were saying that the, the oh, White House terrible. press corps, the White House press corps is, is not really necessary in some ways. Is, and we know that because we had an entire press secretary have a job and essentially go to work and never hold a briefing at all. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about that too, because I feel like I don't know what's worse having someone stand up there and lie and have it come across as legit versus having nothing, you know, because yeah. reporters, good reporters, the, the white house press briefing was always just to get the president's comments. It's not to do the right. real investigation. Right. right so right, right, right. you have plenty of good journalism that happens without the white house press briefing. Now with the white house press briefing, it's just a way for them to, to lie. <laughs> and I, yeah. I mean, it is yeah. to lie. Uh, it is. No, no. I, and I agree with you. Absolutely. I mean, they, any, anybody that stats out there for Trump, um, except for Tony Fauci, yeah. um, who has been sidelined, um, has, is going out there to lie. I mean, we know that any of his cabinet people, any of the pe any of the corporate, uh, horrors that he's found, which is really, really, disrespectful to sex, sex workers who work really hard to call <laughs> these people whores. <laughs> you think you have essentially their peers calling them out in public uh, of, you know, saying, why are you, why would you possibly suggest that this is, is him acting presidential when he just put on pants, he, he put on yeah, pants yeah. and tied his shoes like a big boy. And you're, you know, you're uh, acting like he, uh, you know, uh, cured cured cancer. Um, <laughs> that, yeah, right. Because you know, Trump so, acts like he cured cancer. Right. And so, so you know, it feels like that you, you and I are not the only ones saying it, that there are actually, there are people within the media who are saying the very same thing. I don't assume that the reporters, Jim Acosta, the people that are in that White House press room, really solid, thoughtful people. I certainly don't assume that they are are acting in bad faith. Uh, and I'm also assuming that many of them are seeing this criticism of their own kind of work. So I'm kind of curious, is this a, a an administrative issue? Is this a management issue of these um, media outlets that are, 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 are continuing this process? I think a big part of that is recognizing that they have to think of their coverage differently. Fox News does not play both sides. It shares one side based mostly on incorrect facts and conspiracy theories. So the traditional mainstream news media can still be neutral and present the truth, but it has to ditch this idea that neutral somehow means sharing both sides. If one side is saying it's not raining, but it is, you have an obligation to report the side telling the truth, as I mentioned earlier. And in, in my opinion, you should also point out that a side is lying when it says that it's not raining. That is how you 
accurately present the news to the American people. And also, journalists in the traditional media really need to take a page out of the Fox News playbook when it comes to sticking with a story. Fox and the alt-right media do this disingenuously with conspiracy theories like Benghazi or Pizza Porngate, but they do understand how to keep a story alive so its followers are talking about it and focusing on it and obsessing about it. But you know, imagine if CNN and the New York Times and the Washington Post kept talking about the Russia bounty scandal to the point that the American public really understood what a horrendous thing it is for the President of the United States to learn that a foreign adversary has offered money to the Taliban to kill American military members. And that the U.S. President knew that and did nothing. I mean, in any other parallel democratic universe, that would be treason, or at least <laughs> abhorrent and impeachable. I mean, it's, it's absurd. And yet Trump has been able to keep it out of the news cycle, essentially. One reporter from Axios did actually take Trump to task on the Russian bounty scandal and asked him some very pointed questions and did a really good job of actually pressing him on something he didn't want to talk about. It's been widely reported that the US has intelligence indicating that Russia paid bounties or offered to pay bounties to Taliban fighters to kill American right. soldiers. Right. You had a phone call with Vladimir Putin on July 23rd. Did you bring up this issue? No, that was a phone call to discuss other things. And frankly, uh, that's an issue that uh, many people said was uh, fake news. Who said that it was, it was fake a fault. news? I think a lot of people, uh, if you look at some of the wonderful folks from the Bush administration, uh, some of them, not any friends of mine, were saying that it's a fake issue. But a lot of people said it's a fake issue. There was well, we had a call. We had a call talking about nuclear proliferation, which right. is a very big subject, where they would like to do something, and so would I. We discussed numerous things. We did not discuss that. No. And you've never discussed it with him. I have never discussed it with him. No. I we would. I'd have no problem with it. But you don't. Believe but you know, the it never. It's because you don't believe the intelligence. That's why. Uh, everything. You know, it's interesting. Nobody ever brings up China. They always bring Russia, Russia, Russia. <laughs> Russia, Russia, Russia. This interview, this revelation, it should be replayed on network news. It should be talked about in the Washington Post, the New York Times. Right. This reporter should be a guest on CNN. And then the House should bring him in, too, and begin the inquiry for possible investigation. Like, Trump is so good at this because he diverts attention with other nonsense, like calling Portland protesters anarchists, or today he said he'll delay the election. He can't do that. He knows these things aren't true, but they're sexy and they get a lot of talk and they get people riled up. And then nobody's asking him about Russia bounty or about Putin. He has changed the news cycle for the day and that's his goal. Right. You know, we've talked about the Civil Rights Act actually having an unintended consequence of actually making, defining racism in a way that if you're not uh, wearing a, a Klan robe, you're not a racist. And one of the things <laughs> I thought in terms of an unintentional um byproduct oddly enough of the watergate investigation um was that in the popular landscape i think they just sort of assumed that the that the media is there and has its back uh, and not recognizing how rare that is to have um that kind of investigative journalism especially in the modern age and so it's sort of like 
the slowly boiled frog, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> it's it's been a kind of a gradual thing. Oh, absolutely. Journalism really is in a precarious spot and in a bit of a credibility crisis, you know, with a chaotic media landscape as we talked about, with a president who loves to discredit journalists because it helps his agenda, and also because of their own doing with not taking their integrity seriously enough and covering truth rather than both sides. You know, the news media needs to consider its reporting responsibility as multi-directional. They have to hold the government to account, you know, hold power of any sort to account. Right. Inform us on matters of public interest, which is vast, and also provide context with some historical and cultural significance and not just cover a Democrat and Republican viewpoint. But as news media consumers, we have a role too. We have to support excellent journalism. We have to promote it. We have to point it out and we have to share it. Right. It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. <laughs>